Yeah, you can definitely give a test. Make them write papers? Oh, yeah, that would be great. Yeah. You guys want to write a paper that Jim assigns to you? Yeah, no, I don't think so. But I have the fun part. I get the grade. Let's, uh, let's pray. I just got back from Mozambique last night, and if I don't pray, I'm going to forget. So let's pray. <laughs> Father, we are, uh, we are grateful for so many reasons. Um, I'm thankful, Lord, for a safe trip. Father, as we look at the news around the world, we, boy, there seems to be a lot of things like earthquakes and floods. And Lord, it saddens us because we know people are hurting in various places around the world. And pray for your grace. Lord, we really are a world that is in need of your Son and your kingdom. And uh, so we do pray, come quickly, Lord, and rescue us. In your Son's name, amen. Uh, yes, I just got back from Mozambique last night. And um, <clears throat> thank you for all of your prayers and encouraging notes and things like that. So uh, I don't really know what time zone I'm in, so I take no responsibility for the sermon this morning. Hopefully you can follow stream of conscious thinking. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so it was, uh, I had an email from a friend of mine last night when I got back. Hey, I prayed for you day and night. How was it? And uh, Mozambique's a long ways. For those of you that have not traveled far, if you've traveled to Europe, picture this. You land at London Heathrow or Frankfurt, and you're a third of the way. That's how far it is. It takes like 40 hours to get there and get back. And so uh, my friend said, so I prayed night and day. How was your trip? And I said, you know, it was great. We... Um, my luggage was lost twice, uh, but found. Uh, they had a snafu at the airport, and I almost missed one of my connecting flights. Um, translation was a real challenge. Translator wasn't very skilled. Water went out for three days. Electricity was out for at least half the time. I couldn't get connected to Internet at all. Um, perfect, just what you expect on a trip to a third world country. <laughs> just, just the way it's supposed to be. And, um, but it was a great time. A bunch of pastors and students who were very excited to spend time uh, out of their life to study different parts of Scripture and make sense of it. So thank you for your prayers, and thanks for sending me. Okay, we're in a series. <clears throat> we just finished one. Mark started it last week. We just finished one where we talked about uh, victory from the standpoint of what is the outcome of living a victorious life? What are the rewards for that? So then we wanted to take some time, and let's back up on the other side and say, what does that road to victory look like? What are the challenges that we face? Um, and there's a lot of known challenges. We, you, you're, not, you're not idiots. You've read many books on the Christian life. So Mark and I, we talked about, we talked about areas of this journey. In fact, we named it neglected aspects of our calling. Places where there's pitfalls or potholes or places where we're likely to trip up if we're not careful. So Mark started it last week, and tonight, today I want to talk about Christ-likeness. What does it mean to be Christ-like? Now, this is a concept that is very familiar to you. Uh, you've probably read books on it. There's hundreds and hundreds, probably thousands and thousands written on it. Um, typically, from the standpoint of what you're responsible for and what you should bring into your life to help you on that journey, those are all good, not in any way criticizing them. They're very good. I've read many of them, agree with them myself, but I want to take a look at a different, look at Christ-likeness from a different aspect. I want to look at it ultimately before the day's over from the perspective of hypocrisy because hypocrisy is something that is leveled against Christians all the time. When I'm out talking to people, that's one of the things that come up is how hypocritical we are. 
And so I, I want to address that. But first, let's kind of lay some foundation on Christ-likeness. Um, there's two sides of this Christ-likeness. Yes, there is your side. There are things that you should be doing that are important. There's no question about it. You should be in spending time in prayer, time in the Word, and all of that. But what about from God's perspective? So I want to take a look at 2 Corinthians, at a passage in 2 Corinthians, which we often don't look at very carefully, um, which might give us a little bit of insight into this. 2 Corinthians, um, I'm going to go back to chapter 2, verse 15. He says, We are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ. We are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ. This is imagery right out of the uh, the Jewish cult, the temple system, with the incense of, of aromas that are pleasing to the Lord. Now it's applied to us as the spiritual temple. We are a pleasing aroma. That's the starting point for this. What we're going to do this morning is take a look at Christ's likeness from God's perspective. Okay? We're going to come back to the passage in just a minute. We use all kinds of Christian lingo. There's no question about it. We have our own dialect, don't we? The words that we use. I was talking to the pastors in Mozambique, and I said, you know, if I were to give a test to the people in my church, most of them could name all the key terms that we use, and I suspect most of you couldn't explain them. Not very well. That's one of the pitfalls of that we have in churches today, we use language without taking the time to really open it up and make sense of it. And the pastor said, yeah, we have the same problem in our churches. In fact, the pastor said, we don't even often know the language, understand it as well. I was uh, speaking at Dallas Seminary a couple years ago at a conference, and um, after one of the conferences, one of my uh, professors who was a professor when I was there took me out to lunch, and he said, I really like what you did with Hebrews. And I looked at him, and I said, Dr. Fanning, you're the one that taught me Hebrews. And he said, just because I teach it doesn't mean I understand it. I love the humility. I love the humility. That is true. That is true. I can say something today that I said 20 years ago, and it means something very different today than it did 20 years ago because of growth in Christ-likeness. All that to say, we have all kinds of technical words that pop out of here. And you're going to hear one in just a minute, being transformed into the image of a son. That's language we use all the time. And the question is, what does that actually mean? What does it mean? You see, Christ is God, but what we're talking about, being transformed into his image, is that we're, he is the perfect human. He is. He's the sinless human. He is the picture of where we're headed of what we're becoming. And we, we live way back here, and we're trying to make sense of it in our own broken, fallen world. And for those of you that have been a Christian for any length of time, you probably realize, as you're walking the road, you're becoming more affectionate, for example, over time. We joke about it. Uh, we want to learn patience. We just don't want to go through the process of learning it, right? But yet we're learning patience. That's becoming like Christ. As we move toward Christ, our, uh, we become more gracious, more loving, more sacrificial, more generous in our giving, more caring for people. That's the process of becoming like Christ, Christ-like, as we get closer and closer. 
That's what it means to be transformed into his image. We are having our capacities restored as humans for what God created us for. We're actually created to be like Christ. We're not created to live in a fallen world. And for those of you that were here for when we talked about sin earlier this year, we talked about sin from the perspective of what sin primarily is as an obstacle on that journey. So when I'm sitting with you for coffee, some of you have been through this, I, I, here's my thought process as a theologian. I already know because you have the Holy Spirit, you are, your natural affinity is a move toward the Lord. That's what you're supposed to do. We're wired for that. We're created for that. So if you're not moving toward the Lord, if your life is not becoming more passionate, typically it means there's something in the way. That's what we call sin. Sin is the identification of destructive behaviors. That's what it is. It's God taking the time to identify behaviors that are going to hurt us. So God is actually being gracious and protective when he identifies sin. If I have a four-year-old and I said, you can't run in the street because it's dangerous, you could get hurt. If I didn't say anything and they ran into the street, would they still get hurt? They would, wouldn't they? So it's an act of grace that I say, don't run into the street because you're going to get hurt. If God had never called alcoholism sin, would it still be destructive? It would be, wouldn't it? And so we would just have to find out the hard way. Sadly, most of us have to learn that way anyway. But it's an act of grace that he says alcoholism is sin. In other words, you're not going to get what you want when you do this, when you engage in it. That's what sin is, is it blocks that natural movement as a Christian toward Christ. Because once you have the Holy Spirit, don't underestimate the power of the Spirit in your day-to-day lives. When we have the Holy Spirit, you are moving to Christ. You are. You no longer have a choice. That's what's behind the word predestination. When you look up the word predestination, as far as I can see, it always applies to Christians. Once you, by faith, move toward Christ, then it is predestined that you will be conformed to the image of his Son. That is going to happen. Or as Philippians 1 says, I am convinced of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it. It will happen. So really what you're left with is two choices. You can partner with the Lord, or you can get drug kicking and screaming. Those are your choices. Because everywhere I look in the New Testament, I see this predestination as going to happen. It is predetermined that you are going to get transformed into the image of a son. The problem is we don't like that. I don't like learning patience. I really don't. So 17 years ago, here's what happened on this trip today, this trip. People have already been asking me. Yeah, so I I checked my bags all the way through to uh, Maputo, Mozambique. And so when I get to Johannesburg, they, they page me. On the airport paging system, I've never been paged in America, much less in a foreign country. Okay? It's like, did I hear that correctly? James Howard, please, you know, go to the white telephone, or, which they don't have. So I went to the ticket counter. I said, you just called my name, and she said, yes, uh, your bags didn't get checked all the way through to Mozambique. I said, but I got my thing here. It says they did, and they said, nope, didn't, so you have to go get your bags. Okay, so I left Security went through immigration, went through passport control, all of that stuff, left the airport, went back into the other side where the bags were, and I'm waiting for my bag to come off the, the conveyor, and it doesn't show up. Uh, this actually happened twice. And so I said, well, where's my bags? Okay. 
And so I went and talked to one of the representatives. She goes, what are you doing out here? You're supposed to be catching an international flight. You know, your bags have already gone. And they said, well, they told me to come out here. Well, they were a mistake. So I had to go all the way back through the whole process and just made it onto my flight. So people say, do I get angry or upset? You know, I don't. This is my 17th year. 17 years ago, I would have. But not this time. In fact, part of me is kind of like, ooh, I'm on an adventure. (laughs) Am I right when you go to Haiti? Isn't that what we experience? Ooh, I'm on an adventure. It's outside of my control. That means it's in somebody else's control. Whose? God. 17 years ago, I would have been uptight, anxious, pushing people a little bit. But this time around, no. Do I like the journey of learning patience? No. But God keeps taking me through it over and over and over again. Apparently, he thinks I need work with patience. Okay? Because I keep cycling through these experiences that try my patience. And I'm glad to say, in a few cases here and there, I actually do okay. Many others where I don't. I don't struggle with anger. That's not one of the things I really wrestle with. Occasionally I do. You can ask Nancy about that. But uh, generally speaking, patience is the one I have to go through. And so that's where the Lord is always working me on this journey. Always working in my behalf to make it happen. So you may not like the journey that you're on, but you are on a journey. You are. The moment we say we believe in the one true living God who is sovereign, omniscient, omnipresent and omnipotent, guess what? He's in charge. Can anything actually ever happen to you without his expressed permission? Anything? No. I love the story of Job for that reason. Because you know the story of Job. Satan is the one that inflicts Job with all this stuff. And at the end of his life, at the end of the year of pain, God confronts Job And he could have said, that was Satan who did that. That was an evil spirit. That was a demon who did that, but he doesn't. He said, will you really annul my judgment? God said, I made the decision that you were going to go through this. If I gave you power, would you really annul it? Would you really do it a different way? God takes responsibility for all that happens. You are on a journey And God is in control. Okay, now listen to this language. This should be an encouragement to you. Verse 15 of chapter 2. We are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ. First of all, that's the beginning point. We are a pleasing aroma. We are. God looks at you and goes, You smell great. I wondered when I was in Africa, we went three days without water. Uh, And I'm in a room with a whole bunch of Africans with no ventilation. And I wonder what I smelled like to them. I know what they smelled like to me. It's very different. And here we are. That's how God looks at you. You are a pleasing aroma. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on and he talks about the confidence that we have in ministry because of the new covenant. Chapter 3, 
verse 4, the confidence we have is through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He, 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 God, has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. God is the one that has made us competent. Everywhere you go in the scriptures, that's what you see. In Romans, you go 11 chapters before you get to a command on what you're supposed to do. And the whole 11 chapters is all about what God has done for you. Then he goes a little bit further. He moves into the whole image of Moses. When Moses was at Mount Sinai, and he goes up to the mountain, and he gets the Ten Commandments, he comes down, his face is glowing, right? And the people, whenever he went to meet with God, he'd come back, and his face was glowing with the glory of the Lord. It terrified the people. And so they weren't ready to receive it, so he put a veil over his face until the glow wore off, and then he would take it off. And this is the picture that he uses in today's world that we are like that. And he says in verse 16 of chapter 3, whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away so we can see things as they really are. The veil is taken away. Verse 17, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. How many times have we talked about freedom? Galatians 5, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. We have freedom. That's what redemption is all about. And we, verse 18, we all who with these unveiled faces are now contemplating the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. Who is transforming us? Who's doing it? God. We are being transformed into his glory with ever-increasing glory into his image, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You see, the Lord has control. The moment you placed your faith in him, you kind of got on a tractor beam. You're not moving toward the Lord. And sometimes that's hard. In fact, often it is. It's always challenging. Because that means in order to be transformed like Jesus, we have to go through the process of exposing our sin. We have to go through it. I have to have it exposed that I'm not very patient. That has to be exposed. And whatever sin is that you struggle with, this is a gift from the Lord that he's doing this. The Samaritan woman, go call your husband. And she said, I'm not married. And he smiles and he says, I know you're not. You've had five husbands and the woman you're with right now is not your husband. He just exposed that in her. What was her response? Could this be the Messiah? You are on a journey. That is going to happen. Becoming like Christ is, is predestined. That's the word. It's a guarantee. It's just that we don't like the journey that it takes to get there. Okay, so let's move to the other side of that for a moment. I don't want to talk about so much what you need to do to be transformed. You can read all kinds of books on that. What happens, though, let's talk about hypocrisy. Let's jump to the other end of this. One of the challenges that we face as Christians regularly is people accuse us of being hypocrites. I get that all the time out in conversations with people, right? You've had that. You know, we're all hypocrites. Okay, well, that's true. Let's be honest. Hypocrite. You just don't know it. I don't tell you everything that's up here. In fact, I don't tell the Lord everything that's up here. I hate it that he's sovereign. (laughs) 
Hypocrisy is part of our life, and I want to talk about it for just a moment. This is, in our thinking, this is the opposite of Christ-likeness. That's how we think about it, isn't it? In fact, how easy it just rolls off our tongues that you need to work on not being hypocrites. That's true. I have no problem with that. But what if there's another dimension we need to consider? I've mentioned before in reading this book, Oz Guinness, Fool's Talk. If you haven't read it, it's well worth it. Fascinating book. He tells a story of Emperor Julian. He died in AD 362. He was the emperor that followed Emperor Constantine. Constantine made Christianity the world, the religion of the empire, the Roman Empire. So when Julian took over, he was committed um, to move them away from the Christian faith. He didn't believe it. He wasn't, wasn't interested at all. So um, Julian rejected Constantine's move toward the Christian faith. He worked energetically to restore the pagan gods and the values of classical Rome. But he died in battle two years after becoming the emperor, so he never really got to fulfill his plan to restore them back to paganism. Okay? So he didn't accomplish it. But what I want, I want to highlight is his strategy, because this relates to the world in which we live today. Most intriguingly of all, Julian's designs included a canny reliance on what he knew was the Achilles heel of the Christian faith. Our Achilles heel, hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Our constant Christian failure to practice what we preach. We talk about that, don't we, up here? It's one of the things we have a conversation with regularly is having that exposed in our lives and learning how to to make our walk agree with our talk. Julian even calculated that, counting on Christian hypocrisy, he could use toleration to deliberately foster Christian disunity. Follow his thinking, because it's brilliant. So when he became the emperor, he called the Christian bishops together and told them to sort out their differences and live in peace. Not what you expect from an atheist, do you? He called all the Christian bishops together and said... Work, work out your differences and live in peace, knowing that was probably the best way to intensify their differences and therefore destroy their unity. Experience had taught him, uh, he remarked to one of his friends, no wild beasts are as dangerous to man as Christians are to each other. Earlier emperors had thrown Christians to the lions. He saw that. And what happens when they threw the Christians to the lions? Their faith flourished through persecution. So what's the best thing you could do? Not persecute. Let the church become apathetic. While the blood of martyrs was the seed of the church, the battles of the faithful are the scandal of the faith. It's better to let Christians hurt their own cause by fighting among each other like wild animals. When Christians fight with Christians, there is an important sense in which both are defeated already. That was his strategy. It's brilliant. Because that's typically what happens. Now, I don't want you to to hear a subtle message here. I'm not... I'm not suggesting that that's something we struggle with. As far as I can see, uh, that's not, we don't struggle with disunity and infighting. I don't see that. But I want you to understand that's why the elders are so, so focused on maintaining unity in our church for this reason right here. Well, then he goes on. 
Um, the answer, uh, he asks a question, uh, what happens if non-Christians push back? And we do not, and we cannot live up to what we say. Will, not, uh, will we not be shown as failures and hypocrites? The answer to that question is simple, although challenging. If unbelievers are pressed to be consistent to their beliefs and worldviews, and therefore shown up as hypocrites, which is true, which is true, we should welcome this. We should relish it. We should welcome someone calling us a hypocrite. Because where unbelievers cannot be consistent, we can and should be. And it works like this. If you've ever had an engaging conversation with your non-Christian friends, you are able to see, if you start asking questions, that as they walk down the road, as you walk that road with them in their own belief system, it doesn't take very long, and they reach the end of the journey that they can go no further. Their system breaks down, no longer has logic to it. Okay? When you take a non-believer to the logical end of their belief, it's not feasible what they believe. It's just not. There's only one belief system that is feasible all the way to the end, and that's the belief system of the one true living God. So one of the things I absolutely love doing, I find great pleasure in it. Maybe this is sin, I don't know. I find great pleasure in sitting with these non-Christians and asking questions and getting to know them and watching them get to places where they begin to be uncomfortable. I asked a guy once, he was talking to me about Taoism. Uh, didn't really understand it, but as he began to explain it, it was kind of like, I finally said, you know, it's a free country, you can believe what you want to believe, but do you actually believe that? And he said, I, I, I think so. Because we got far enough into it that it no longer made sense. That's very common. In fact, that is the universal rule when you talk to non-Christians. It's not true with Christians. Ours is consistent because we serve the one true living God. So what if, what if, and this is a question he's raising, what if hypocrisy is not the enemy? That is a fact of life in a broken world, a fallen world. We are 100% of us hypocrites. What if that's not the issue? What if the issue is pride that keeps us from admitting it? Now we're talking in terms of the opposite of Christ-likeness. What if hypocrisy is one of God's primary ways of revealing his glory to unbelievers? When they say Christians are just hypocrites, and we say, yeah, you're right, we are. Don't want to be. And I'm working on not being that way. But you're right, I am. I'm just telling you I'm a hypocrite. Just putting it out there in front of the church. I am. And you know what happens when you're honest and you say, you know, I am a hypocrite. I wish you hadn't seen that, but you did. And I'm sorry for that. Many years ago, many years ago, I went to work for a, a lady who was a non-Christian. Uh, it's pretty obvious in the interview process she hated Christians. Uh, 
Come to find out, she's been married several times. And, uh, so I didn't tell her I was a Christian. I waited until she hired me because then she can't fire me. <laughs> so uh, the first day on the job, it's a professional job in auditing. First day on the job, I walked into her office and said, can I have a little bit of your time? She said, sure, what's up? And I said, I'm a Christian. And there go the eye rolls. You know, great. She's going, great. Boy, did I just make a mistake. And I said, no, I'm not telling you that for your benefit. I'm telling you that for my benefit. Because my Christian faith is important to me. So I'm going to tell you some of my values. And if you don't mind, you become one of the key people in my life that helps me live out those values. I'm a person of integrity. I want to be a person of integrity. And I'm making a commitment to you to be a person of integrity. And if you ever discover that I'm not... I wish you would tell me. And I went down the list of three or four of my core values. One of them was, I'm not going to hurt your integrity by gossiping. You can do a fine job on your own. You don't need my help. And she did what you did, chuckled a little bit. And I said, so my commitment is to never undermine your integrity, but to always uplift you and bring honor to who you are as a supervisor. Twice in my several years there, she came to me and said, you made a commitment and you broke it. She was right. You talked to so-and-so, and this is what you said about me. And both times she was right, and I had to bite my tongue and say, you're right, and I'm wrong, and I'm very sorry. Let me go back and straighten that out. And I did. That was, on, that was the road, that was part of that road for her to come to Christ, which she did eventually. Took years. <laughs> Took years. She came to Christ. What if our hypocrisy is a given It's a guarantee. We can't avoid it, not until glory. We can get better as life goes on, but it's never going to go away. What if it's one of God's tools, if we are humble, that he uses to bring his glory out to people who don't know it? So then Jesus can do what uh, he did to the Samaritan woman. He can expose your hypocrisy for his glory. What if that's what's going on? Does that make sense? As he moves us toward Christ-likeness, that journey necessarily, it has to include exposing who we are. Can't transform sin and hypocrisy if you can't see it. So the greatest gift God can give you on the journey to Christ-likeness, and this is why I brought that verse up, Because he takes responsibility for your transformation. He does. So the greatest gift he can give you is to expose where you don't have integrity. Can't transform what you can't see. Does that make sense? And then in his sovereignty... He uses that in a powerful way in the lives of those around you. Because typically, hypocrisy is exposed by the people around you, isn't it? That's where it usually comes to light. People pull it up. Our Christian friends are not idiots. They see the truth. Yeah, we're hypocrites. How much better is the response to say, you're right. You got me. That does go against my faith. I shouldn't be complaining. When I complain, I tell the world I, don't, I really don't believe my own theology about complaining, do I? 
You fill in the blank. Whenever you demonstrate a particular sin, you just communicate to the world you don't believe your own theology. Truly. And they can highlight that. Thought you were a Christian. What are you getting angry for? You're right. So many of you have sat with me over coffee where I've asked those questions. Where I may say, um, for example, so why did you choose anger? Well, you just heard my story, didn't you? I said, yeah, you just spent 30 minutes explaining to me the circumstances, but why anger? Are you not listening to me? No, 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 I'm listening to you. I'm just wondering why you chose anger. Jesus wouldn't have gotten angry. You had a choice. Why anger? You could have chose forgiveness, but you chose to get angry. What was that all about? Some of you have been on the other side of those coffees. I'm not trying to embarrass you or shame you or guilt you. I'm trying to expose to help you wrestle with what is the motivation for you to do the things that you do? I had one person say when I finally got down to that, I heard your story. I'm just wondering why you chose anger when you had these other options. And she said, I don't know why I chose anger. Okay, now we're getting to the real core of who we are as people. Yeah, I don't know why I did that. Now, I understand. I don't want to make it too simple. Sometimes we do need, sometimes those inner mechanisms are so complex, we need skilled help to get it exposed and work through. I get that. But the end process really is simple. It has to be exposed in order for you to transform But God in his wisdom uses that very hypocrisy as a way of bringing glory out, light out to the world around us. What if the real problem is our pride, not our hypocrisy? Because I guarantee you, you're all hypocrites. You're in good company, by the way. You see the difference? Christ-likeness is saying, I don't know why I do it that way. I wish I didn't. You're right, I'm a hypocrite. I wish I wasn't. Because that's not what my faith teaches. Our faith can withstand the test all the way to the end. No other belief system can. It breaks down, not ours. Ours is the only one. So we are actually the only ones, by being humble, that can show consistency and say, you're right. You're absolutely right. I shouldn't be like that. I shouldn't be complaining. You're right. So what's God's, what is God exposing in your life? I know he's at work. Father, thank you for so many things. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for um, recognizing our sinfulness, our fallenness, and using that as the very means by which you reflect your glory. It gives us a way of being very real with our friends, our non-Christian friends. Thank you for your love and your grace, which just permeates all of our world, your mercy and your forgiveness. And thank you for taking responsibility for my transformation um, so that I can relax and walk the road. In your son's name, amen. Can I ask you,